The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins against you, you must rebuke the offender. If there's repentance, you must forgive. If the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending the sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and while I drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what he was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that were your uh, tasks to be done, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done only what we ought to have done. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We're going to be in Luke 17, 1 through 10 today. Let's pray. Help me, God, to speak your word in truth and grace and open our ears to hear what you would say to us through this passage. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Verse 1 through 4, Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Beloved, sin is always lurking at our door, isn't it? Temptations to sin abound. Jesus decries sin and our giving into it so that another is caused to sin in the most severe terms. Our culture loves sin calls it normative, and promotes it as good. You're entitled to your truth, after all. Jesus says, it's better to die a horrible death with a millstone chained about your neck and be thrown into the sea than for us to be the cause of someone sinning in any way. Now that's grave. I wonder, do we hate sin? How eager are we to name it in our own lives? Or are we cavalier with it? Do we minimize it, dismiss it, overlook it? 
John Stott exhorts us in this way. He says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate sin too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours too. What other reaction can wickedness be expected to provoke in those who love God? You know, we will hate sin to the extent that we love God. Don't be deceived. If you tolerate sin, if you overlook sin, if you justify sin, your love for God is questionable. You can't have it both ways. Spurgeon wrote, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. We need to learn from the story of the passion to hate sin with a great hatred. Sin was the cause of all our Savior's suffering. Our sins platted the crown of thorns. Our sins drove the nails into his hands and feet. It was on account of our sins that he shed his blood. Surely the thought of Christ crucified should make us loathe all sin. Let it stir us up to the hatred of sin and provoke our minds to the earnest love of Almighty God. That was J.C. Ryle. Christ is saying to take sin seriously, to understand the gravity of it. Don't tolerate it in yourself and don't overlook it in others. Let's expose it, not condone it. Let's repent of it, not minimize it. And then in verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now Jesus is talking to all his disciples here, the whole group. And he's telling them how we can keep from causing another to stumble by paying attention to our sin, by naming sin as sin. If we have a brother who has sinned, we ought to name it for him. Rebuke is the word Jesus uses here, and it means to verbally and strongly correct someone. And we need to do this not from a spirit of, I don't ever sin and you do, not from a spirit of I'm better than you or I'm the the sin police, but we need to do it from a spirit of a, a spirit gripped with the severity of sin. Sin is never neutral. Sin always kills. It will kill something every time you sin. Something will die. It leads to death. There is no other destination sin leads to but death. And our concern that sin left unnamed or tolerated in our midst, leaving our brother or sister in a deceived state worse than death is what compels us. That's the motivation. Our world, and sadly in the church, we think love is tolerating sin, looking the other way. Lately, I've seen these cute little signs at home stores or on bumper stickers that says, love is love. Love is love. Sounds good, doesn't it? What does, 
Who would argue with that? Love is love. No, God is love. God is love. I argue with love is love. God is love. The sign's overt message sounds good, but its deceptive meaning is in opposition to the Lord God. Its subliminal message is that however you want to define love is love. But that's not the truth. God is love, and his definition of love is embedded in his laws and his ways. And it does not include abiding sin by removing the parameters he himself set. Letting whatever I want to do or feel at the moment is my truth be considered right without his standard being applied. Our willingness to be concerned about sin is out of love and respect for God and for his truth and for the well-being of our brother and our whole community. This is a picture of what hating the sin and loving the sinner looks like. Read the book of Jude. won't take you long. Meditate on it sometime. He recognized the deceitfulness of people in and out of the church who treated sin with an anti-Christ agenda. He says, but you, dear friends, keep yourselves in God's love. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Rebuking sin, naming it in our midst, is snatching people from the fire. To embrace the gravity of sin as God defines it and to communicate that gravity to one another or someone in sin is a loving thing to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. I pray we grow in love for God and one another, that in obedience to Jesus, we hate sin in ourselves and in others and act in love to snatch from the fire those gripped by it. And then Jesus says, forgive as a lifestyle. Think of the disciples hearing these words. A motley crew of men and women like us, they had different personalities from one without guile to the sons of thunder to an impetuous one. Kind of like us. They had some more educated, some less, blue collar and white collar of their day. We do too. They had journeyed together enough to know that sometimes they got on each other's nerves. Some they got along better with than others. Some they kind of tried to avoid. Some were more easily angered. Others more lighthearted and fun. Like us. When Jesus said... Forgive one another again and again and again. They likely started looking around, realizing, oh dear, I might be in trouble. Some offense had come, some unkind words spoken, some annoyance, disdained. We'd probably do the same. Can we hear the Savior saying to us today, with one another, deal with your sin? Embrace the gravity of sin, rebuke sin, and when the person repents, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Let that be the pattern. 
When you or I sincerely repent of our sin, God rushes in with forgiveness every time. He's calling us to do the same. God never says, enough, I've forgiven you 70 times 7, your allotment is up. I'm tired of forgiving you. I've forgiven you, and then you go back and do the same thing you just said you weren't going to do again. No, he never says that. What does he do? He forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. We're to extend to one another the same forgiveness extended to us without measure. There is an unlimited supply of forgiveness in God through Christ. And we will love one another well to the extent that we can rebuke sin in ourselves and in one another, forgive continually as a lifestyle. That's the key to loving the sinner and hating the sin. Lord, help us. Verses 5 and 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And Jesus had shocked them with the gravity of what causing one to sin is and the command to forgive over and over and over. And it sounds like a pretty good prayer to say to Jesus, oh, increase our faith. N.T. Wright's commentary on this passage says, Perhaps not surprisingly, the disciples realize in verse 5 that all this will require more than they think they have. Jesus is quick to respond, it's not great faith you need. It is faith in a great God. Faith is like a window through which you can see something. What matters is not whether the window is six inches or six feet high. What matters is the God that your faith is looking out on. If it's the creator God, the God active in Jesus and the spirit, then the tiniest peephole of a window will give you access to power like you never dreamed of. Amen? That was good, Mr. Wright. We tend always to think of ourselves first, don't we? How do I do that? How do I forgive? How do I figure this out? We trip ourselves up when we start thinking about all the commands Jesus gives and the expectation to die to ourselves, the needing to not cause someone else to sin in light of who we know we are, and the prospect of forgiving as a lifestyle. It gets overwhelming because we start focusing on ourselves or on everyone else. Our focus on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is misplaced onto ourselves or onto those around us. And then we freak out, start asking for more for us as if it's up to us. Jesus invites us back to God as the object of our faith, the source of our help, and the only way this world makes sense. Rightly focused faith is the key. Bringing our gaze back to God. You know, remember, Jesus only did what the Father was doing. His gaze was always on the Father. His ear was ever tuned to the Father. He only obeyed the Father. He, above all else, trusted the Father. You know, and I'm so thankful we only need a mustard seed amount of faith because that is full capacity for us. If I had faith to the fullest capacity of my mind, my soul, my body, my strength, it would still be only a mustard seed amount in comparison to the greatness of our God and the matchless name of Jesus who dwells in unapproachable light. God who has not beginning nor end, 
the depths of which we will never plummet, the heights to which we will never summit, the length to which we can never reach, and the breadth to which we will never span. My life, fully his, is a mustard seed to be planted in the soil of God's love, and in him alone will I live out the life he called me to live and have the faith I need to do to do it. I went to the river yesterday to work on this homily, and when I got there, sitting in silence and solitude before him, I began to weep over the losses I feel personally, over the people and situations I love in my life that are currently grieving my heart, over the realization of my own lack of love and the woeful inadequacy I have to navigate it all. And when I began itemizing all these situations and scenarios that concerned me, you know, it was like a minefield all around me. I was overwhelmed and despairing until by his grace I got to the end of myself and gathered up all those concerns, all those sorrows, all those losses. I lifted them before the great and loving God all the unfixables, all the insurmountables, all the unreconcilables of my life. And I was able to see him in a way and remember that I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is committed to his, to his care until that day. I know my Redeemer lives. And out of that place, through that mustard seed window, I touch a power I never dreamed of. I don't need this great big faith coming out of me to deal with this or that, to stop doing that, to fix that problem. Because he has it. He does. The object of my faith supplies all the faith I need. A steady gaze, like a laser-like focus, a mustard seed-sized window on the, holy, on the only one worth believing in is enough. And when I see him, I surrender all over again and am able to march on in obedience with gratitude. And this postures us rightly to serve him. Verses 7 through 10. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come back in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. The word here for servant is bondservant. In Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, God commanded everyone with a slave in the seventh year to give freedom to that slave, sending him off with generosity, not empty-handed, but with wine and livestock and grain. But if the slave says, I love you, master, I will not go out from you because I love you and your household and I am well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear and he shall be your slave forever. A bondservant is one who, when given opportunity to leave service, chooses to remain a servant in the master's house for life. I have a little third earring I've worn since 2001. Joel had it made for me after 
I was moved in such deep appreciation to God for all he had done for me. I vowed in the grace of God to stay in his house forever as his bondservant. I consider myself a bondservant bride of Christ. We all are. My joy is to be his servant forever. It's a red ruby stone reminding me of the love of God expressed in the shed blood of his only son, my Lord, for my salvation. On the edge of it is engraved Exodus 21.6, the bondservant verse. It's a small reminder to me of my vow. And I have at times sinned thinking he was asking too much of me. Life was too hard. I mean, like enough already. Haven't I suffered enough or haven't I given up enough? But then I repent because I'm more free as a slave of Christ than anywhere else I could be. What's the alternative? Life is hard with or without Christ. Life is hard. But with Christ, even if it's the worst possible life I could have, when I see him face to face, it's glory from there on out for all eternity. No sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, no dying. But outside of his house, if I have the best life I could possibly have on this earth, when I die, it's pain and loss and sorrow and torment and death perpetually forever. So I touch my reminder and thank God to be in his house. So in this portion of our text today, that's the context of this slave. He's a bondservant committed to being with the master for life. In his heart, he recognizes that he was dead in the water, so to speak. He was the one with a millstone chained about his neck, cast into the midst of the sea, and he was rescued, unchained, and given a place in the master's house. It's a privilege to work in the master's field. It's his joy, even after working all day in the field, tired though he may be, to come in and prepare a meal for his master. And it's in certainty that after he has served his master fully, there will be food for him at the table. There will be a place of rest for him. There will be protection and peace all for him in the master's house. His love and appreciation for all the master has done compels him. Never once would he have thought that the master owed him any more than what he had already done. He's not looking out. He's not looking for an out or for thanks. The servant happily works and serves because he was saved from death and because he knows that his life is the best it could possibly be in his master's house. His gratitude to be owned by the master supersedes his own agenda in every way. May it be so with us. Beloved, it's a privilege to be a slave of Christ's own. You will be more free as a slave of Christ than anywhere else. This is a reminder. We serve a God who came into our watery grave when the millstone was about our neck in the bottom of the sea of sin without hope. And he set us free. And he raised us up above the waters. And he adopted us as sons and daughters. And he seated us in the heavenly places. And he calls us friend. How can we not respond in loving, surrendered service to him? So today, I encourage us in the grace of God. 
to embrace the gravity of sin out of love for God and for one another, to name sin, repent of it, and help one another do the same. I implore you to live a lifestyle of forgiveness, to have a mustard seed-sized window focus on God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to posture our hearts and minds rightly in deep appreciation and love. And let's serve him all the days of our life. Amen. Amen.